Welcome to episode five of A Thought for Food, a special series within the Science in the City podcasts brought to you by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Episode five, sugar in the morning, sugar in the evening, sugar at supper time. Today's podcast has something for everyone. Life, death, sickness, health, chemistry, medicine, politics, the illegal, the immoral, and the fattening. Because today, we are going to dive with both feet into the most hotly debated topic in nutrition today. Sugar. Specifically, a kind of sugar called fructose. To start with, we already talked quite a bit about sugar in episode 3 of this series, which was all about your metabolism, the system by which your body turns food into energy. To quickly sum up, there are little furnaces in every cell in your body called mitochondria. And in these furnaces, your body burns things that it gets from your food and thereby produces a substance called ATP, or adenosine triphosphate, which you can then use as energy to do things, things like walking and breathing and thinking and keeping your heart pumping, basically everything that happens in your body. These little furnaces need to be kept constantly supplied with fuel, because if they stop running, we stop running. They can burn a bunch of different things, sugars, fats, protein, alcohol, but sugars are the most efficient fuel for short-term energy. Most especially, a simple sugar called glucose. To help explain, here's Dr. John White, a nutritional consultant who works with the Corn Refiners Association of America. Glucose is the sugar of commerce, of energy commerce in the body. And it is imperative that the level in the bloodstream remain within a certain range. Uh, too much glucose and the organism becomes sick and, and uh, could die. Um, and too little glucose and the same could happen. The organism he's referring to is, of course, you and me and him. Maintaining this constant healthy level of glucose in the body is so important that there's a whole system of enzymes and hormones just to make sure we're metabolizing it at the right speed to keep the levels constant. There's also a special storage system in the liver called glycogen, which is just for glucose, so that the body can always be accessing a steady supply. If there's a surplus of glucose, then it can be stored as glycogen. Um, if there's a need for energy, then it is converted to, um, ultimately, to ATP. ATP is generated. Uh, that is the principal energy compound throughout the body. Now, it's important to understand that glucose is a kind of sugar. But what we mean when we talk about sugars is not just sugar, the white powder, or even sweets, but all carbohydrates. Because nutritionally speaking, the words carbohydrate and sugar are more or less synonymous. A big percentage of everything we eat is made of carbohydrates, and therefore made of sugar. For instance, almost everything we eat that comes from plants, wheat, corn, rice, beans, barley, and all fruits and vegetables, all of that is largely broken down in our system into some amounts of just two simple sugars, glucose and fructose. Both of these sugars taste sweet to some degree, but generally speaking, things that taste starchy or fibrous are mostly glucose. And what we register as sweet, 
fruit, honey, candy, and vegetables like carrots and beets taste that way because they also contain some amount of fructose. Very frequently as part of a more complex sugar, a disaccharide called sucrose, which is made up of pairs of one glucose and one fructose bonded together. Here's another professional nutritional consultant, Dr. Fran Seligson. Let's say you eat an orange. There's going to be some sucrose in there, some glucose, and some free fructose. When you eat that, your pancreas will be secreting enzymes that will break the sucrose apart. And so when you get into this small intestine, the, the free fructose that was in the orange, the free glucose that was in the orange, and the sucrose just becomes a mixture of free fructose and free glucose. Some foods are made of even more complex carbohydrates. These require a little more work by your system to metabolize, but eventually they're also broken down to some amounts of these two simple sugars, glucose and fructose. A good example is starch, which is in corn and potatoes and a lot of other things, and is basically a whole bunch of glucose molecules all bonded together. There are also some kinds of carbohydrates, such as cellulose, that are built out of these same simple sugars, but which we can't actually digest. We just don't have the right chemicals and mechanisms in our digestive system, but which are still good for us to eat, because by passing through undigested, they have a kind of cleansing property. These are what we refer to as dietary fiber. Let's just say you eat some whole wheat bread, and in that whole wheat bread, you're going to have some starch, and you're going to have cellulose in there. The cellulose is nothing but a bunch of glucoses that are linked together, and starch is nothing but a bunch of glucose that are linked together, but we don't produce the enzymes from the pancreas that can break down the fiber, but it will break down the starch. So if all of that stuff is made out of sugar, if pasta is sugar and potatoes are sugar, and apples and carrots are sugar, then what actually is the stuff we call sugar, the white powder we put in our coffee? Well, it's made of crystals of sucrose, the disaccharide we mentioned earlier that consists of bonded pairs of glucose and fructose. So anything you can buy in the supermarket that's marked sugar, white, brown, or beige, powdered, confectioners, pure cane, turbinado, whatever, are all almost entirely 50% glucose and 50% fructose. There are tiny amounts of minerals and impurities that cause the different colors, but even there, the most common impurity, the thing that makes brown sugar brown, is molasses, which is a byproduct of sugar manufacturing and is also almost entirely 50% glucose and 50% fructose. To elaborate a bit, here Dr. Julie Jones, Professor Emerita of Nutrition at St. Catharines University in Minnesota, and Dr. Robert Lustig, Professor of Clinical Pediatrics at UC San Francisco. When you make sugar, you take the cane or the sugar beet and you centrifuge it, and that separates the sugar crystals from the molasses. And brown sugar has some of the molasses left in it, as does turbinado. They may have some different qualities in their more unrefined states, but uh, the amount of minerals and things would not be a great difference unless you're eating cups of the stuff, and we really wouldn't recommend that, so. It's all the same. Turbinado, there, there are 48 names for sucrose, and they're all basically one glucose, one fructose. So that's sucrose, which is to say sugar, 
which is the most traditional and popular ingredient for sweetening food. People have been using it for thousands of years. But we all know there are plenty of other sweeteners out there. And there's one in particular that's extremely popular, but has been a lightning rod of controversy for decades. Of course, I'm talking about the notorious high fructose corn syrup. Now, before there was high fructose corn syrup, there was regular corn syrup, which you can still buy in the store. It's that thick, clear stuff you use when making pecan pie. It's also often the main ingredient in pancake syrup that isn't maple syrup. Corn syrup is definitely sweet, but it's not as sweet as sucrose. High fructose corn syrup was invented in the late 50s and perfected in Japan in the late 1960s. And it's basically corn syrup that's been treated with enzymes to make it sweeter so that it matches the glucose versus fructose ratio and therefore the sweetness of sucrose. Here's Dr. Jones again. High fructose corn syrup is really badly named. So when people think about um, the high fructose corn syrup, they think it's like 99 and 4400% fructose. But in fact, um, it's really the same as sugar. Now, what's really interesting about all of this is that if you listen to what the people who are most strongly in favor of high fructose corn syrup and most strongly against it are saying, they're actually largely making the same point, which is that, nutritionally speaking, high fructose corn syrup and sucrose are basically the same. They're both 50% glucose and 50% fructose. Here, both making that point, are Dr. White again, who, as I said, is a consultant for the Corn Refiners Association, the group of companies who manufacture high fructose corn syrup, followed by Dr. Lustig, who, as you'll soon hear, is no fan at all of high fructose corn syrup. I think um, by now there is generalized agreement in the scientific community among those who know what they're talking about that there's no distinction metabolically between high fructose corn syrup and sucrose. High fructose corn syrup and sucrose, for all intents and purposes, biochemically, are indistinguishable. So if they're so close to being identical, and high fructose corn syrup is so controversial, why is it used at all? Why not just chuck it and go back to regular old sugar for everything? Well, there are a couple answers to that. And the first one is, while sugar and high fructose corn syrup are nutritionally equivalent, they're not exactly culinarily equivalent. There are some differences in the way they behave when you use them in food. Here's Dr. White again. There is a modest, a very modest functional difference. It, it has to do with the nature of uh, a sucrose being a disaccharide where fructose and glucose are bonded together or monosaccharides in high fructose corn syrup where the fructose and glucose are free. We, we call them free sugars. And an example of that would be cookies. Sucrose crystallizes very well. High fructose corn syrup does not. And so as a cookie cools, the sucrose will recrystallize and give the finished cookie kind of a snap. If the same cookie is baked with high fructose corn syrup, the sugars don't recrystallize. They were in solution to begin with, and they remain in solution, essentially. And so you have a soft, moist cookie. High fructose corn syrup is also naturally a syrup, which is to say a liquid, as opposed to sucrose sugar, which is a powder of crystals, meaning solid. This makes it easier to use when you're sweetening beverages, like soda pop. Another functional difference is simply the, the state, the physical state of the, of the product. High fructose corn syrup is a liquid product. It's a syrup product. 
and it was initially formulated as a liquid alternative to sugar. And so it has a tremendous um, advantage in liquid products like beverages of various kinds because it's already in solution. It's easy to transport around a manufacturing plant and using pumps, and it doesn't require the level of human uh, interaction, the human labor to, to use it. It can be dissolved readily, and, um, and so it's a superior product for that, for that reason. The other reason high fructose corn syrup became popular is that it solved one of the age-old problems with sugar. The fact that the most efficient way to produce sugar is from sugarcane. And sugarcane is a tropical plant. This means that if you live in a country with a temperate climate like the United States or Japan, you have to import it from someplace else, which is expensive. Also, you frequently have to import it from places like South America or Southeast Asia, where both the weather and the politics frequently aren't so stable. This means the price of sugar sometimes fluctuates like crazy. Um, today, sugar is about nearly twice as much as high fructose corn syrup. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was the same price, and it all has to do with supply and demand. And, and um, sugar is, um, well, it, in years past, Sugar was predominantly grown in equatorial regions, which had weather instabilities. Uh, we're, we're now acquainted, reacquainted with hurricanes and the devastating effect that they can have. Um, but also, these countries used to be politically unstable, and either one of those would disrupt the flow of sugar to to sugar-consuming countries and would greatly influence the, 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 the price of the product and the availability of the sweetener. High fructose corn syrup, on the other hand, is made from good old corn, a crop that is native to North America and grows here better than just about anything else. So you don't have the expense of importing it, and you don't have to worry about a hurricane or a coup d'etat coming along to mess up your supply chain. So when high fructose corn syrup came along, uh, produced from a very stable agricultural crop in the United States, um, it, was, it was embraced with open arms. So here's where we come to the realm of controversy. Basically, the food industry position is that high fructose corn syrup is a good thing because it's the same as sugar, except easier and cheaper to produce. And there's a very vocal opposition camp that says high fructose corn syrup is not a good thing because it's the same as sugar, except easier and cheaper to produce, and they're both really bad for your health. In a way, the point they're making is that the fervor over high fructose corn syrup has been a bit misplaced because the real issue is an inherent problem with fructose in all of its forms, in high fructose corn syrup, but just as much in sucrose or as free fructose. And that problem has to do with the basic chemistry of how fructose is metabolized and the way that it's different from glucose. Let's look at why that might be. To start with, no one would argue that glucose is one of the most important nutrients and absolutely essential for life and health. And that's largely because it's a nutrient that is very easily converted into energy. We measure that potential for energy conversion of a food in calories. A problem comes, though, when we eat too much of it, more than we need for the amount of energy we're expending. What happens then is that we store the excess energy as fat, partially 
because we burn the easily metabolized glucose first, and so we never get around to burning the fat that we eat, which is more complicated to break down, and so that fat just gets packed away. And partially because we can actually turn excess glucose into fat through a process called de novo lipogenesis. As we learned in episode 3, we absolutely need some amount of fat in our bodies, but if we store too much, we get overloaded with it, which is called obesity. Obesity causes a lot of health problems. It's responsible for a complex of about a dozen different diseases that are lumped together under the term metabolic syndrome. And one of these, ironically, is a breakdown of that system of hormones and enzymes that we mentioned a few minutes ago that so carefully control how we metabolize glucose. So we end up with a kind of feedback loop where poor glucose management compounds on itself. This is a condition we've all heard of, and I'm willing to bet that every single person listening to this podcast knows someone who is suffering from it. Type 2 diabetes. Here's Dr. Lustig again. So metabolic syndrome is uh, classically defined as the cluster of diseases that go along with early demise. Uh, they're all metabolic diseases. The five that were originally uh, defined within the syndrome are obesity, type 2 diabetes, lipid problems, hypertension, and heart disease. We now know that there are several other diseases which fit within metabolic syndrome as well, including non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, chronic kidney disease, uh, polycystic ovarian disease, and also early data now uh, adds cancer and dementia to that list as well. The real point of controversy, what all the flap about fructose really comes down to, is that some scientists think of fructose basically as just another carrier of calories. And so it can contribute to obesity and all of its related problems, but it's no more of a contributor to those issues than other nutrients might be, like glucose or dietary fats or alcohol, which are also all high-calorie foods. Some scientists and doctors, though, and lately there's been a lot written in the press about this theory, think that fructose is uniquely bad for you. That because of the specific way it's metabolized, it plays a bigger role in causing these diseases than other nutrients with the same caloric content. You may recognize Dr. Lustig's name and voice from one of several videos of him lecturing on the subject of sugar that have gone viral on YouTube. The most popular, called Sugar the Bitter Truth, has been viewed more than two and a half million times since it was posted in 2009. And while most doctors and researchers would tell you that the specific biochemical motivation of metabolic syndrome is not well understood, Dr. Lustig's thesis is that metabolic syndrome is specifically caused by eating fructose. Fructose is not the cause of obesity. Fructose is a cause of obesity, but it's not the cause of obesity. But we believe that fructose is the thing that takes obesity to metabolic syndrome. At first glance, fructose is a lot like glucose. It's also a simple sugar, and it's also very readily burned by our mitochondria to produce ATP. But it takes a different path to get to the mitochondria. And the main biological concept that's being utilized in the anti-fructose thesis is that because it takes a different path, it completely avoids all of the controls that are placed on glucose. To explain, here's Dr. Lewis Cantley, 
professor of systems biology at Harvard Medical School and director of cancer research at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. The liver, like other tissues in the body, has what's called a negative feedback control mechanism so that if you have too much glucose flooding through the glucose metabolism pathway, then high levels of ATP are produced and that shuts off the flux through glycolysis. And so that, to a certain extent, puts a break on the rate at which glucose gets metabolized in all tissues, the liver, every, everywhere else. Now, when you slow that down, the excess glucose that's going into the liver now goes off to be stored as glycogen. So that all has a very tight regulatory mechanism. Fructose cheats. So when it goes into the liver, even if the liver has high levels of ATP, which would slow down metabolism of glucose and allow it to be stored as glycogen, fructose gets processed separately in the liver so that it bypasses that negative feedback loop and can still go down the glycolytic pathway. And as a consequence, rather than being stored as glycogen, it can go on to make fatty acids. And so that's, that's the general idea that having high fructose allows you to make more fat while having high glucose allows you to make more glycogen. Now, Dr. Cantley and many others would tell you that we don't really know all the ramifications of this difference and exactly how it connects to things like diabetes. The truth is that we don't fully understand it, but I would argue that if you're making a lot of fat out of carbohydrate in the liver by the mechanism that I described, that that is ultimately going to give you insulin resistance. But there's this additional complexity that we don't fully understand and that also is contributing to the insulin resistance. And this latter pathway, whether that correlates specifically with carbohydrate or is in general a consequence of overeating is, in my opinion, not completely clear. But Dr. Lustig and his colleagues believe that the difference between the glucose and fructose pathways is a smoking gun. Every one of these chronic metabolic diseases that I mentioned previously can be traced back to inappropriate processing of energy. That because fructose delivers its energy directly and all at once to the mitochondria, it causes a kind of a jolt of uncontrolled energy that in turn causes all kinds of negative repercussions. Because the mitochondria are overwhelmed, two things happen. One, the production of liver fat, which then makes the liver sick. And number two, what we call reactive oxygen species. So this is like hydrogen peroxide inside your cell. Bottom line, we think that fructose is a toxin. Fructose is uh, toxic beyond its caloric equivalent. He also asserts that fructose is doubly dangerous because it's not only toxic, it's also addictive. There's an area of the brain called the reward center. It's known as the nucleus accumbens, and it's the site where dopamine, the, the neurotransmitter dopamine, works to generate the feeling of pleasure. So dopamine is pleasure, and more dopamine is more pleasure. And many things can stimulate dopamine. Cocaine, amphetamine, nicotine, cannabis, ethanol, heroin, you name it, they all stimulate dopamine. Well, guess what? So does sugar. So is sugar addictive? Well, it does every single thing to the nucleus accumbens that all of those drugs of abuse do. Not quite as severely, 
not quite as demonstrably, but it does them nonetheless. So the question is, is sugar addictive? And the answer is most decidedly yes. We get firmly into the realm of political activism when Dr. Lustig asserts that because of this addictive property, the sale and consumption of sugar should be regulated the way that alcohol is regulated. Basically, fructose and alcohol are virtually identical. They are not insulin regulated. They go straight to the mitochondria and there's no glycogen pop-off valve to speak of. All those things make both alcohol and fructose metabolically equivalent. Now people, of course, say, yeah, but alcohol you know, causes um, brain dysfunction and fructose does not. That's true. You don't see the acute effects of alcohol when you consume fructose. But all the chronic effects in terms of how it affects the liver are exactly the same. No difference. We know that alcohol causes toxicity, and so we keep it out of the hands of children. Well, guess what? Fructose causes toxicity, too. And we have no policies that limit its uh, availability or consumption. And that's the problem. Actually, there is some political action starting to be taken on the idea of limiting people's consumption of sugar. Right now, for instance, here in New York, the city where I live and where this podcast is produced, our mayor, Michael Bloomberg, is backing legislation to limit the size of fountain sodas that can be sold at restaurants in order to limit the amount of sugar that people are ingesting. To Dr. Lustig's way of thinking, this kind of legislation is necessary because he feels that the food industry, in a reckless and avaricious way, has been encouraging us to eat more and more sugar. And because of that, we no longer have any choice in the matter. He thinks that we've all, as a society, become hopelessly addicted. 80% of the 600,000 food products in America are laced with sugar, and the food industry is the ones who did it. So you can't even find food that doesn't have it. So if you can't even have access, if you've been co-opted by the food industry, whose responsibility is it? Basically, the food industry has to stop adding added sugar to every single food that we consume. Uh, but they have absolutely no impetus to do so because the government doesn't tell them to. And as long as we are addicted and we keep buying it, you know, this is their juggernaut in terms of um, dollars. They, they're making money hand over fist. Keep in mind that if you buy into this theory about the toxicity of fructose, it's not just about high fructose corn syrup or even table sugar. It's about all fructose. And so an unlikely villain in that story is something many of us think of as the paragon of healthy eating. Fruit juice. Everyone thinks fruit is healthy. You know what? I think fruit is healthy. But fruit juice is not. So what's the difference between fruit and fruit juice? One word. Fiber. Juicing the fruit basically means the fiber ends up in the garbage. And the fiber is important because what the fiber does is it reduces the rate of absorption of sugars, including fructose, from the gut into the bloodstream. And that gives the liver a chance to catch up and metabolize it so that it doesn't go that liver fat route. Number two, it moves the food through the intestine faster. So you get to the end of the intestine where the satiety signal occurs. So you generate a satiety signal sooner. So you won't necessarily have the second portion. Which would you rather have? One orange, which has 15 grams of fructose and 
boatloads of fiber, or a glass of orange juice, which has 120 calories, 60 of which are fructose, and no fiber. The effect that helps control your blood sugar is now gone. So juicing is not what people say it is. It is not a good thing. Also, some of the natural sweeteners that have become fashionable as a supposedly healthier alternative to high fructose corn syrup actually contain more fructose than either high fructose corn syrup or plain white sugar. And therefore, if you're working under the assumption that fructose is toxic, they may actually be worse for you. Here's Dr. Jones again. High fructose corn syrup. Now, people are just sure that this is really, really bad for them. And so they choose agave syrup. Agave can be 85% fructose or higher. And it just, so they're, they're taking something with a lower fructose level and picking something with a higher fructose level. If it's natural, it's got to be good for me. They sort of forgot about cobra venom and um, deadly nightshade. I mean, many, many natural things are really quite poisonous. And I'm not saying that agave is poisonous. Don't, please don't let that, um, but the, they're, they're assuming it's better for you than the high fructose corn syrup that was made in the lab. And in fact, it may not be. We need to take a deep breath here, though, and realize that there are many distinguished scientists who disagree strongly with this whole theory of seeing fructose as poison. Here's Dr. White again. The claim that sugar is toxic doesn't pass the test of face validity. There's little argument that many Americans consume too much sugar but that's only one factor in a poor dietary pattern. So it just doesn't hold water to call sugar toxic. One of the big problems with this theory, according to Dr. White, is that much of the research that has led to these conclusions has been done by charting the effects of ingesting fructose in large doses administered all by itself, rather than mixed with other kinds of sugars and other kinds of food. That might very well be a problem, because we almost never ingest fructose all by itself. In nature, it's always found packaged together with glucose. Most of the experimentation being done is under extreme conditions, under conditions that humans don't normally face. That is, atypical or hyper, uh, hyper exposure to fructose. And often, although not exclusively, with fructose being fed by itself in comparison with glucose by itself. The ratio of glucose to fructose in the diet is five to one. Five glucose for every one fructose. Now, where does that come from? Well, the, the ratio of glucose to fructose in sweeteners is about one to one in sucrose and high fructose corn syrup and in some fruit juice concentrates in honey about about one to one but because we consume so much starch and and so many starchy foods like potatoes and rice and tapioca and, and wheat and so forth these things are all largely starch based and starch is a polymer of glucose and so our diet is typically um, overwhelmingly glucose in composition. Now, to Dr. White's way of thinking, these two facts, that fructose is almost always eaten along with glucose, 
and that there's always some amount of glucose, and usually a large amount in the system anyway, are really important. Because glucose is so highly regulated, he believes that in a normal diet, fructose is actually brought under that same regulatory control. Now, it's true that fructose is taken up largely by the liver. And so as soon as a meal is digested and fructose enters the bloodstream, it will largely be taken up by the liver. And some people estimate that nearly 100% of this is taken up. It may not be that high because there is some evidence that fructose is converted to some other things in pterocytes during digestion. Largely, though, it, it ends up in the liver. It's estimated that only about um, uh, 20% of the glucose that is eaten is, is taken up by the liver. But since there's five times as much, that means that an equivalent amount of glucose enters the liver uh, at the same time fructose is entering the liver. Glucose is very tightly regulated, and it will exert its influence in the liver and certainly in muscle and adipose tissue and in the brain. So our bodies are largely regulated by glucose, and fructose certainly is being metabolized, but it's not unregulated. It's, it's not a, a gunslinger. Uh, <laughs> it's not um, a loose cannon in the body, as many people would like you to believe. Dr. White feels strongly, too, that the effects in the brain of fructose, including a potential addictive effect, have also been misunderstood by separating fructose from glucose. Um, a, a paper came out last year or the year before uh, from the University of Oregon, and I think Purnell was the lead author, P-U-R-N-E-L-L, looking at functional MRI. And what Purnell did was look at the brains of humans that were not fed but intravenously given glucose, fructose, or normal saline. Used, used normal saline to get a baseline value, looking at a brain image. When glucose was given intravenously, you got a positive deflection above the baseline. When fructose was given intravenously, you got a negative deflection below the baseline. Purnell's conclusion, aha, here we have evidence for the difference in the brain between fructose and glucose, but what he failed to do was acknowledge that by, by injecting these things intravenously, he was feeding the bloodstream much more fructose and glucose at one time, sort of a bolus, than would ever be consumed, uh, uh, achieved by, by the diet. And secondly, that people don't eat fructose and glucose separately. They eat both together. And what would likely be the consequence had he fed both fructose and glucose intravenously? The, the, the positive and negative would have moved toward the saline baseline. And, and likely they would have canceled each other out and looked just like the, the saline baseline. What's missing in, in the whole idea of fructose metabolism is perspective. Often scientists fixate on a very narrow aspect of fructose metabolism and they ignore everything else that's going on. This is sensational, and it gets a lot of attention, but I think it's, it's not very meaningful in terms of what's really happening in the body. So what's the answer here? Is fructose inherently bad for you, or is it just a carrier of calories like other carbohydrates? 
to be honest, I think we have to say that the jury is still out. There are very smart, very qualified people like Dr. Lustig and Dr. White who honestly disagree and who can each point to stacks of scientific papers and studies that seem to lead to very different conclusions. We just don't know enough yet to say conclusively. But maybe there's something we can take away from all this that's built only on established incontrovertible facts. And it has to do with the original bugbear of this business, sweetened beverages. Thanks to all the press around programs like the Atkins diet and the South Beach diet, we've all pretty much come around to the idea that eating too much carbohydrate can make us fat. But most of us don't really understand the fact that sugars are carbohydrates, and therefore how much carbohydrate is in something like regular soda pop. A typical large soda is 32 ounces, and 32 ounces of soda, and I'm talking about regular sweet soda or sweet tea or fruit punch here, contains around a third of your total recommended daily allowance of carbohydrates. That's an entire meal worth of carbs, the same as two cups of cooked pasta in a beverage. So if you're eating three meals a day, unless that large soda is your entire lunch, it would be very hard to not overshoot the amount of carbohydrates you should be taking in. If it is your whole meal, it's a meal that's entirely carbs and water and salt. No fiber, no vitamins, no calcium, no protein, nothing else. Now, if that large drink is just a beverage and not your whole lunch, and you're not getting enough exercise to work off an entire extra meal every day, then the extra calories you're taking in have nowhere to go except to be stored away as body fat. So maybe, just maybe, Mayor Bloomberg might be onto something. Special thanks to our experts in this episode, Dr. Fran Seligson, Dr. Julie Jones, Dr. Robert Lustig, Dr. Lewis Cantley, and Dr. John White. This podcast was a production of Science and the City and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science, not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit us on the web at scienceandthecity.org and nyas.org nutrition. And also please feel free to share your thoughts with us about this podcast or any other Science and the City program by email to scienceandthecity at nyas.org. <laughs>